Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored. Last May, as I was in R.J. Julia Bookstore in Madison loading up on my summer reading, I almost immediately saw the book, Revolver, Sam Colt and the Six Shooter That Changed America. But I thought, what more do I need to know about Sam Colt? After all, I live in Hartford, where I drive by the Colt Armory, Colt Park, the Colt addition to the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the Church of the Good Shepherd, and Colt's home, Armsmere, on a regular basis. But it turns out that I didn't know much about Colt's life before he became fabulously wealthy. He traveled with a novelty act, womanized, drank, smuggled guns to Russia, bribed politicians, and blew up ships in New York Harbor with electricity. Let's dig into some of these stories with author Jim Rassenberger, author of Revolver, Sam Colt and the Six Shooter That Changed America. He's the author of four books, Revolver, The Brilliant Disaster, America 1908, and High Steel, and has contributed to the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Smithsonian, and other publications. A native of Washington, D.C., he lives in New York City. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I know Colt was born in Hartford, but what was his youth like? Well, the first five years of his youth were quite wonderful. He was born into a large affluent family in a neighborhood called Lord's Hill. Uh, It's now around the area now known as Asylum Hill in Hartford. And everything, and and his parents were uh, highly social, very well liked. The family was sort of this wonderful, perfect family. There's a great quote from uh, the poet, Lydia Sigourney, who happened to live across the street from the Colts, writing about the family and how how beautiful they all were. Uh, But then in 1819 came a a terrible financial panic in the United States, and it affected Sam Colt's father, who lost everything. That changed their lives considerably, followed two years later by the death of Sam's mother. She died of consumption, tuberculosis. And then everything sort of turned bad. A number of the children died. The family was reduced financially. And they finally end up in a mill town, Ware, Massachusetts, where Sam's father, Christopher, has gotten a job um, as the agent or the manager of a textile mill. So it was, you know, almost like paradise for the first few years. And then it, it got very rough. Now, he has a connection to Emily Dickinson. What's that connection? Well, that comes after he, yeah, it's a funny one. It's, it's interesting when you go into Colt's life, how there's, you know, one degree of separation from almost everyone interesting you can think of. Now, I should point out that Emily Dickinson wasn't born yet, but this is an interesting connection to me anyway. When Sam was a teenager in Ware, Massachusetts, he was already up to a great deal of mischief and troublemaking. And his parents sent him to a school called Amherst Academy. This was a boys' school in Amherst, Massachusetts, down the hill from where Amherst College is today. Now, Amherst Academy, like Amherst College, had been um, founded by the Dickinson family. Dickinson's lived just down the street. 
Emily, when Sam was at the school in the summer of 1830, had been conceived, but not yet born. So she's sort of around, but he he was only there for a few months because he was not, you know, the thing you come to learn about Colter, he was not a guy who took well to authority and rules. And there are a lot of rules at Amherst Academy. So he devised to get himself kicked out pretty quickly on the night of July 4th, actually it was July 3rd, going into July 4th, he and a couple friends stole a cannon. They rolled it up to the top of Amherst, to the top of College Hill, where the college sits and started lighting the cannon off. This roused the entire town, brought out all the faculty yelling and screaming at him. Uh, And one of the, the witnesses of this event was Edward Dickinson, Emily's father, who later wrote a a wonderful letter about the events of that night and how a a, a professor named John Fisk had run out and demanded that Colt stop firing the cannon and Colt instead lit off another match and set a gun for Professor Fisk and lit off another cannon fire. And then um, when Fisk began to yell at him, he announced that his name was Colt and he could kick like hell. This all comes from Edward Dickinson, the sort of firsthand report of Colt as a young man. But I'm, I'm always just amazed to think of this Emily Dickinson's family and Colt are in the same place together. They somehow don't go together. <laughs> but of course, there they were. So he starts out as this very genteel New England guy from a distinguished family in Hartford. But uh, he ends up on a trip to Calcutta, India, which sounds pretty out of the box to me. How did that happen? Yeah, so... A month after he's kicked out of Amherst Academy for lighting off this cannon, he ends up on a ship called the Corvo sailing for Calcutta. Now, commonly, it's thought that this was a punishment that his father meted out to him for having gotten himself kicked out of school. In fact, Colt, as a young boy, he wanted to go off to sea. A lot of young men, this was the great adventure that young men wanted to go on in those days. So as a 16 year old, he boards his ship to Calcutta. Now I found um, one of my great finds was the journals of several missionaries, Christian missionaries who happened to be on this ship heading to India and missionaries kept journals. And I hunted these down and found them. And lo and behold, one of the missionaries writes at some length about this poor kid, Sam Colt, who is absolutely miserable on the Corvo. He's getting bullied, he's seasick, he just wants to go back home. And eventually he steals some food from the missionaries. He gets caught and he ends up getting flogged aboard the ship. So this doesn't turn out to be the journey of his dreams. But the really important thing about the Corvo journey is that it is on the return from Calcutta apparently, that he invents this new gun called the revolver. The story is that he got the idea from the windlass of the ship. It's sort of a winch that was used to haul up the anchor or haul in sails. And that that may or may not be true. There's another thought that he may have stolen the idea from a gun that he'd seen while in Calcutta. In any case, he carves out a model of what this gun is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to work. Those pieces, you mentioned the Wadsworth Athenaeum, those pieces are now in a glass case in the Wadsworth Athenaeum where anybody can go and see them, uh, which is quite extraordinary. But those become the prototype for what would eventually become the Colt Revolver. Now, in your opinion, do you see this as 
a more or less true story, or is this a myth he developed over time? You know, you never really know with Colt. He was one of the world's great prevaricators. He told a lot of stories. He told a number of different stories of how he came to invent the revolver. I suspect this one has some truth in it, but I would I I think the sort of um, you know the the eureka moment strikes me as probably more of a good story than the truth. We do know that when he got back, he landed back in Boston uh, on July 4th, 1831. And he had these pieces and he immediately went to work. In fact, returned to Hartford to start to turn these this, this idea he had into a workable gun. As I read the book, I was really surprised how many failures Colt had and how many people he had borrowed or squandered money from. So tell us a little bit about his early businesses. Colt was, uh, had many failures, as you say. Incredibly, he was, th- that revolver that he invented when he was 16, by the time he was 21, he not only had a number of workable prototypes, but he also had a factory in Patterson, New Jersey, that was backed by a lot of wealthy men. And they began to manufacture the Colt revolver. So Colt is, at the age of 21, quite wealthy. And he's living in New York City, and he's spending money wildly, living large. That company, though, fails rather quickly by sort of the patent. He gets his patent in 1836, starts the company in 1836. But in 1837, there's another one of these financial calamities in America that happened pretty often in those days. And the business starts to go out of business almost as soon as it's launched. So as I write in the book, Colt was rich at 21, poor at 31, rich again at 41. You know, there are a lot of things not to love about Sam Colt. A lot of qualities we wouldn't consider particularly wonderful or moral. But the, the thing that struck me about him as really admirable was he was absolutely relentless. He never gave up. So no matter how bad things were, no matter how many failures he encountered, he just got back up on his feet and he went out and he kept trying until eventually he succeeded. He does seem like the kind of guy, though, that he borrows money from his father and that money disappears and doesn't seem to get repaid. He borrows money from an, an uncle and in the meantime, he's living in a hotel and he buys cigars and he drinks and he goes out to hotels. And so it, it seems like he had a, he was certainly living a certain lifestyle, but does he ever repay any of those family members early on? The short answer is no. He may have, he, he had an uncle named Dudley Selden who was very important in um, starting his first company. Selden um, gave him a great deal of money. His father, too, Christopher Colt, did lend him some money, but Christopher Colt had very little money to lend anyway. In fact, for him to buy stock in the company that Colt began when he was 21, Christopher himself had to borrow it. So Colt, as you say, it's absolutely true. Colt um, is profligate with money. He just wastes it, spends it on, you know, I, I found some clothing receipts of his, and he's buying all these fancy duds when he has nothing, really no, nothing to live on. Um, and it's on, all on borrowed money. But you know, the, the thing about Colt is he, he had this charm where he could keep getting people to lend him money, even though they all knew very well they'd never get it back. You know, it's part of his relentlessness and part of what must have been considerable charm in his personality. 
I agree. Absolutely. I can see, definitely see that charm factor working with him for, and for him. He also manages to find people that are the technical, I want to say the technical innovators are the fine grained people that can actually put these guns together or take his idea and make it a working entity. Tell me a little bit about some of that because he's not, he's not sort of slaving over a foundry somewhere in solitude working on these guns. You're absolutely right. But like many entrepreneurs, he was capable of doing mechanical work. But that wasn't really what he was best at. He was best at finding people who were extraordinary at it. And he did that. As a very young man in his late teens, early 20s, he worked with a gunsmith in Baltimore named John Pearson. Colt took terrible advantage of this poor guy, but Pearson made several extraordinary early models of the gun. Later, of course, he had Elijah Root, who became very important in his company uh, in Hartford. There were a number along the way, though, that were technical geniuses. And Colt had a, had a, a knack for finding these men and then for getting them to work for him and stick with him even when they're, you know, the better part of reason would have told them not to. He, he got the best work out of very brilliant people. Absolutely. I was also surprised by how tragic some of his family stories were for his siblings. I was actually shocked, to be honest. Can you tell us about his siblings? Yeah. Uh, yes. Almost sad stories with almost every one of them. Starting, of course, with his two sisters, one who died of tuberculosis when she was very young. And then his sister, Sarah Ann, who uh, was a teacher uh, when she was 21 years old. In fact, she taught in the, the school that was started by the Beecher sisters, later Harriet Beecher Stowe taught as well, started by Catherine Beecher. She was a teacher. She was sort of following Lydia Sigourney into that field. But for some reason, she became very depressed when she was 21. There are a number of stories about how that happened. Um, one is that she, a romantic issue, the sadness over her mother's death. In any case, she committed suicide with arsenic at the age of 21 when Colt was 14. Another brother named John, his oldest brother, very early on after the mother's death, John, who was a few years older than Sam, left the family and still as a very young man began traveling around the country, kind of a ne'er-do-well, but also clearly very gifted and smart. He, he wrote as a very young man a, a book about on accounting, uh, which became quite popular. He clearly had a lot of brains, um, but also a very troubled man. Well, in 1841, he ends up in New York City, where Sam is at the time, and he's come to start a publishing company, and he has an office on Broadway and Chambers Street. And one day in walks a printer named Samuel Adams, uh, to whom John Colt owes money. They get into an argument. It becomes physical. John Colt happens to have a, a hatchet handy on his desk. He picks it up, and he hits Sam Adams with it and kills him. Now, that's bad enough. The worst thing, though, is what happened then that night. John Colt came back and trussed up the body of Adams and put it into a box. And then the next morning, took it to a ship on the East River 
uh, to mail it to um, as cargo. But the ship did not sail because of bad weather, and it began to stink, this box did, and it was discovered, and soon John Colt was discovered. And this became the first murder of the century in the 19th century in New York City, and it was an absolute extraordinary story in the penny presses in New York City at the time. The penny presses, of course, took the facts of the case and built them into something they really weren't. They, there was a suggestion that John Cole had cut the body up, um, that he had even eaten parts of it. I mean, it got very grisly. But anyway, John ends up um, being tried for this murder. He ends up getting the death penalty by hanging. And well, this story ends very dramatically. You mentioned the, uh, the submarine battery um, in your introduction, I think, that, that Sam Colt invented. Well, so Sam Colt is working on the submarine battery at the same time that his brother is about to be executed. On the day of the execution, the prison where John Colt is being held suddenly goes up in flames and John Colt disappears. And the question is, did he escape? Was this all sort of a something that Sam Colt has sort of cooked up to get his brother out of prison? on the day of his execution. It's one of the really, there's so many rabbit holes and mysteries um, in the life of Sam Colt. And this is one of the biggest one. What happened to John Colt on the day of his execution? Anyway, there's a few examples of the sort of dramatic stories that happened to the Colt family. There are others too. By the time Sam died at the age of 47, he was, he and a brother were the only ones left. And that brother himself had a fairly tragic life. Is that James? That's James, yes. Um, and James and Sam had been very close and they ended up being bitter enemies. James survived Sam, but had clearly had some sort of mental illness. It's not clear what he had and had a lot of trouble in life. And another brother, Christopher, died uh, in Hartford as a very young man, probably of alcoholism. Again, not totally clear. There might have been some drugs involved, could have been uh, laudanum. Uh, but certainly alcohol poisoning. So a great deal of sadness. I mean, something worth noting is that all American lives had a great deal of sadness at that time because people died. Infectious diseases ran rampant all the time. You know, a family of eight children, it would be lucky if four of those survived to adulthood. So the Colts were not alone in suffering a lot of tragedy. But they certainly seemed to have more than their share of suffering, even compared to what was going on uh, in the rest of the country. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. Celebrate the holiday season with the Connecticut River Museum. To the delight of kids of all ages, the Connecticut River Museum continues its winter railroad tradition with the 28th annual holiday train show, opening November 23rd and running through February 20th. Joyful faces watch in wonderment as model trains zip through tunnels, over bridges, and around familiar river valley landscapes. The CT River Museum, open year-round Tuesday through Sunday, offers both guided and self-guided tours and boat excursions. 
Go to ctrivermuseum.org for more information. I thought you did a really deep dive into trying to figure out whether a boy that Sam referred to as his nephew is really his son and uh, his relationship with the woman that might be the mother. So tell us a little bit about that, because that's a that's a scandal that you hear a little bit about in Hartford. It's a very complicated story. And as I researched it, it only became more complicated. I, I spent way too many hours going down that rabbit hole. But let me try to tell it briefly. I mentioned that John Colt was tried for murder and was to be executed. Well, John Colt was living with a young woman named Caroline. Uh, Caroline Henshaw was her name. And shortly before the execution was scheduled, Sam Colt arranged to have John and Caroline married while in prison in the tombs in New York City. Caroline at this time was pregnant with a child. Uh, The boy was later born and he was named Samuel. Now there's always been this suspicion that that young boy, Samuel Caldwell Colt, was in fact the son of our Sam, of Sam Colt, the inventor of the revolver. I think it's probably the case for a number of reasons, including letters. I found a letter from Caroline to Sam in the Connecticut Historical Society that to me seems to confirm that they had a relationship that was romantic. There's a lot of other evidence too, but thrown into all of these complications is another woman's name, Julia Leicester or Lester. It comes off as different spellings, different pronunciations. And she ends up in Europe with the boy Sam in the 1850s. So the question is, are Caroline and Julia the same person? Did Colt ship Caroline off to Europe to get her out of the way and have her change her name, by the way? And was she, in fact, Caroline and the father of Samuel? This is really, I don't think, my own investigation suggests to me they're not the same person for a number of reasons. One is I could compare the handwriting of letters from Julia to Sam and the letter from Caroline to Sam, and it's clearly different handwriting. So I don't think they're the same person. But what the relationship is of these two women, why little Sammy is with one and then the other, what happened to Caroline Colt if she was not, in fact, Julia, these are all mysteries I never solved. And if anyone has any information, <laughs> please reach out to me, uh, because I will go to my deathbed thinking about this, because it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating mystery. And I went a long way, I think, towards solving it, but never, I don't think, solved it completely. Now, Sam meets his wife, Elizabeth, who becomes very prominent in Hartford in her own right, fairly early, but how many years go by before they get married? They meet in Newport, Rhode Island, in 1851 is their first meeting, I believe. Elizabeth went there with her family. By this point, Newport already was sort of a vacation destination for the the wealthy. Uh, Sam started going there. They clearly met at some of the dances. They probably knew each other through other family connections, including a mutual friend, Lydia, the poet Lydia Sigourney. But they didn't marry until 1856. And I don't really know why that is. I suspect it's because Colt, his main focus was on his business always. That always came first. And he did not want to get married and start a family until he had that well in hand. And By 1856, he was clearly on his way to being a very wealthy man. He'd already built um, Coltsville, 
his armory by that point. He'd even started building Armsmere, the house that's still there by that point. He just needed a bride to fill it and then children to come along. And that's what happened when he married Elizabeth uh, in 1856. She, he was in his uh, 40s by this point. She was quite old for a bride in those days. I believe, I can't remember her age, maybe 30. So it was a late marriage and it only lasted briefly because of course, Colt died only after being married for five years. But it was a happy marriage and produced several children. A number of those, few of those died, one survived. So uh, that was, um, you know, it's, it's one of the tragedies of Colt's life that just when he meets the woman that he's going to be happy with, and it was really his perfect partner, he dies. So before we talk a little bit about what those turning points were that made him successful financially and as a really as an industrialist, I was surprised how many times he goes to Washington, he tries to get a gun contract out of the federal government because they're the big buyers. And he goes one time and they tell him, no, we can't use this multiple chamber gun situation because it'll kill too many people too fast, which I thought was kind of an interesting idea for them to reject that. Uh, but he he's goes to Washington just over and over and over again. He tries to bribe people. He gets agents involved that secretly represent him that are different congressmen. That was kind of revealing it. It just shows you that that kind of murky bribery, bad behavior has been around for a long time. Absolutely. um, You make a case that it's the really the Mexican-American War and the expansion into Texas that helped him build a reputation and a brand. How is that so? Yes, you're absolutely right. Colt was, again, relentless in trying to pursue government contracts. He knew that's where the real money was. Uh, but it never happened, not until the Mexican War. What happened in the Mexican War was it really came down to a former Texas Ranger by the name of Samuel Walker, who fought uh, in the Mexican War. He became a war hero very early in the Mexican War. Now, Walker, fascinating guy, had been um, you know, serving in the Texas frontier as a Texas Ranger fighting Comanche Indians. After he becomes, so, and he had had experience with Colt revolvers while fighting the Comanche in the early and mid 1840s. So when he gets to the Mexican War in 1847, he brings, he wants revolvers and and they start using these guns, the Texans do anyway. After becoming a hero, Walker returns home. He ends up in Washington and he meets Sam Colt and he tells Colt that he wants to get some more of these revolvers. Colt, of course, is very interested in Sam Walker, who, as I say, is a war hero by this point. Walker and Colt meet, and they together design a new gun uh, that comes to be known as the Colt Walker, sometimes known as the Walker Colt. And it is just an extraordinary piece of machinery. It's uh, 15 inches long. The barrel alone is nine inches. It weighs almost five pounds. And this gun, Walker then takes to the War Department in Washington and says, we need this gun to fight the Mexicans. And the War Department orders its first thousand guns from Sam Colt. So Colt really owed this to to Walker. Uh, Walker then goes back to Mexico to continue fighting. He never gets his order of guns for his troops. He does a few days before he goes to fight 
he does get a pair of guns and he takes these with him to fight, but he dies at the hands of the Mexicans almost immediately. But it's really Walker who puts Cote on the map. And that first thousand guns is the beginning of Colt's contracts with the United States government and really the beginning of Colt's road to riches. You know, one of the things I just love about your book is so much fine-grained research. Where did you find your material? I know there are a number of Connecticut archives that you used. Yeah, almost all of my research was done in Connecticut, uh, most of it in Hartford. The the bulk of the Colt papers, all the personal letters, much of the business correspondence is in the Connecticut Historical Society. You've probably been there, absolutely wonderful archive. Uh, I spent a lot of time there. I would, I live in New York City. I would drive up there on Thursday mornings, spend Thursday afternoons there, then all day Fridays and come back to New York. I did that week after week. I also did quite a bit of research at the Connecticut State Library and Museum, which also have a wonderful collection of Colt papers and materials, and including, of course, a great collection of Colt firearms in the museum. And Finally, um, the Beinecke Library at Yale University has some great cult papers. In fact, I probably, my greatest find, I think, was at the Beinecke, where I, I found a journal that Colt had kept as a 17-year-old that was fascinating to me. Uh, they, most of the pages had been ripped out, but it had some information in it that, that sort of led me to speculate on where he'd gone and what he'd done, and absolutely fascinating. So I did a, I did a little more research around New England, some in Rhode Island, um, where some Colt family ended up, a little bit in uh, Pennsylvania, but mainly in Connecticut. When Colt dies at age 47, it, he dies in Hartford. It's 1862, so the Civil War is on. How is he celebrated after he dies? He's given a extraordinary send-off. All of Hartford pours out. They come out to Armsmere. That's where he was buried. Uh, that's where the, the service took place. All the men working at the factory come up the hill. A number of them carry the coffin out into the yard. And as I say, all of Hartford marches out from downtown out towards Armsmere. And he was, you know, a. I think most people in Hartford had, let's say the general c- consensus was mixed. He had been extremely important to Hartford, to the development, not just of his gun, but really to industry in Hartford. I mean, Colt was one of the fathers of the American Industrial Revolution and one of the reasons why so much of it happened in Hartford. But he'd also been at odds with a number of politicians in Hartford. The building of Coltsville had made him unpopular among many people uh, because he bought up all this land. And you know, and Colt was a was a you know a difficult man. <laughs> he did things his way. Uh, he rubbed people the wrong way, poked a lot of people with his elbows. So there clearly were a lot of people in Hartford who didn't have you know fond feelings about about Colt while he was alive. But when Colt died, the Civil War had begun. Colt's factory was working day and night to produce guns for the Union, and Colt was certainly a kind of a hero by that point. And the fact that he had died as a young man, he was just 47, uh, of course, added an element of tragedy to his death. So again, I'd say altogether treated as a hero, but not without 
some people in Hartford having mixed feelings about him. Mrs. Colt really spends a good part of the rest of her life burnishing his image. How does she kind of clean that up a little bit or make that a little bit better? I think it's one of the really fascinating parts of the afterlife of Sam Colt is what Elizabeth does. She is like, like many 19th century Americans, quite good at bringing together the tenets of Christianity. She was a very devout Episcopalian with guns and with things guns were used for. And um, I mean, the perfect example of this, literal example is the Church of the Good Shepherd, where this it's a beautiful church, but into built into the church are pieces of guns, chambers, barrels, the two did not contradict each other as they might to some of us, Christianity and, and guns. To, to Elizabeth, they came together quite neatly. Um, she saw the guns sort of as a way in which white Christian culture could be established in the United States and also around the world. So, I mean, there's no questioning her devotion to her husband. Some might now question some of the principles she had that, you know, based that devotion on, but she was extraordinary. I mean, she was, you know, for any man who plans to make a lot of money and die young, this is the woman you want to be married to. Uh, because she found a way not only to forgive what he did with his life, she found a way to forgive what were, you know, his heavy alcohol drinking, his womanizing, all these things that he was guilty of she either ignored them or she rationalized them and kind of turned him into this heroic, wonderful figure, you know, not quite Christ-like, but almost. That was not Sam Cole. You know, the guy that she turned Sam Cole into was not actually the man who, who lived those 47 years, but you have to hand it to Elizabeth for trying. In closing, just tell us about what happens to his one legitimate son, and the boy that he refers to as his nephew, who may have been his illegitimate son. His legitimate son, Caldwell, grows up in Hartford, a very wealthy and spoiled young man. He goes to Yale, where he is more interested in betting on horse races and that sort of thing than in working hard. He then comes to work for the armory, but is really not interested in doing that. He has more interesting, more fun things to do, such as go yachting and uh, summering in Newport. He ends up dying young. The official diagnosis was tonsillitis. There were also rumors that he was killed by the jealous spouse of a woman that he'd been trying to woo. I don't know. I mean, he, he died in Florida, died young. In some ways, he became kind of the, the model for the, the wasteful young rich men who later came along, you know, the Vanderbilts the, the, and other rich people who would summer in Newport and live these sort of debauched lives, spending their father's money. The more interesting story, and I think the more lovely story, is what happened to the, quote, nephew, Samuel Caldwell Colt. He stayed in Hartford as well, um, inherited quite a bit of money from his father. And he becomes a farmer and is, had always been very interested in animals, even as a, as a boy. Sam Colt hated this about um, Samuel Caldwell Colt. He thought the kid was growing up too soft and should put his attentions to more important things. But all little Sammy really cared about was animals. And as he, when he grew up, that's what he did with his life. He raised animals. 
he became one of the founders of um, an agency to protect animals in Connecticut, um, an early version of the ASPCA, and got married, had a number of children, and had a, to my, you know, to all that I can discover, a happy, contented life, but never became the man his father would have liked, which would have been an industrialist, a, a much harder man than he actually became. Thank you so much for being my guest today on the podcast. Coltsville, Sam's industrial village, including the Colt Armory, workers' housing, and his estate have been listed as a National Historic Landmark and authorized as a National Historical Park under the guidance of the National Park Service. For more history and self-guided tours of Coltsville, go to their website at nps.gov colt. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg received support from the State Historic Preservation Office of the Department of Economic and Community Development with funds from the Community Investment Act of the State of Connecticut. I'm Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. I hope you'll join us for our next episode.